Welcome to Ask Andy featuring Andrew Redleaf. Ask Andy is sponsored by Park State Bank. Visit www.parkstatebank.com for all your banking needs. Jason Cross, with whom I had the discussion on Bitcoin several podcasts ago, sent me a podcast from a macro thinker named Raul Pal. And I want to comment on that piece, which I think relates to my macro views and some of the other things I've said in previous podcasts. Pal, as I understand it, makes two points which I think are interesting and therefore worthy of comment. The first is he says one should think about crypto in terms of Medcalf's law, which Medcalf's law says that the value of a network increases with the square of the number of nodes. And to determine the number of nodes, he looks at sort of the number of wallets. And so the more people that are involved in Bitcoin, hold it, accept it, trade it, the more valuable the network. And he says the value of the network accrues to the holders of Bitcoin in a way that Facebook, with however many users, the increased value of the network accrued to Facebook shareholders, whereas in crypto, the holders accrue the value and therefore have an incentive to recruit members and keep the network robust. The uh, second point Paul makes with a series of charts that I think are quite dramatic and interesting is he charts asset prices, you know, particularly the S&P and so forth, divided by the Fed's balance sheet. And maybe across the world, he might add other central bank balance sheets. And uh, what's interesting is that asset values plunged post-crisis, and in simple dollar terms, they've rallied and are obviously at all-time highs. But if you divide that number by central bank balance sheets, it's essentially been a flat line since 08. You know, very, very striking. This is really the only asset class that has made progress when divided by central bank balance sheets is crypto. The charts are very interesting. You know, I think there's a real uh, kernel of something very, very interesting there. And, of course, Pal is bullish on cryptos generally, as he says, the network has still huge potential to expand. And I think he's more bullish on things like uh, Ethereum because it has a smaller base. It's growing faster. It's sort of the same value as Bitcoin when it had that size network. The network's going to grow, and therefore the value's going to grow. I think Pal may well be right in terms of a short-term trading strategy and a shorter-term view of crypto. At the end of the day, I, I do disagree, and I, I do think it's wrong. And my argument is several-fold. Uh, first, Medcalf's law is not a law in the way that the laws of thermodynamics are laws. You know, I would describe it as more a occasionally useful heuristic. You know, obviously, the value of a network is also dependent on strength, robustness, and usefulness of the connections within the nodes. And certainly, an, any network can shrink, can be obsoleted, 
etc. So one might ask, what does the Bitcoin network look like when it's fully saturated? And what happens to prevent people from leaving? I think there are a couple of points and a couple of uh, contradictions within the thinking on crypto. The first is called cryptocurrencies, the idea being currency as a denominator, a medium of exchange, a store of value. I think just as a matter of logic, a fixed finite supply or a supply growing at a modest constant rate at some point in the future, though, as I understand it, Bitcoin is capped at 22 million does not ensure a constant value in terms of other things. With a constant immutable supply, the value in terms of goods and services will obviously fluctuate with supply and demand for goods. In particular, if one had a broad-based disruption of the production of goods, one would have inflation. And on the other hand, if one had a positive you know, kind of supply, shock, something that increases the production of goods, one would have deflation. And, you know, in fact, in the years of the gold standard, in the short term, there was long-term sort of price stability, and gold held its value remarkably well over a long term. But in intermediate periods, one had both inflation and deflation. To have sort of a constant denominator, one does in fact need an adjustment mechanism to the supply and demand of the numerator. And I think for the most part, and one doesn't know for sure, the holders of Bitcoin hold it because they think it's going to go up, as opposed to it being a safe store of value. So if in fact it achieved stability, it's not at all clear that people would in fact hold it. Holders of Bitcoin, holders of gold, tend not to speak about dollars or euros without using the word fiat. And a big part of the Bitcoin narrative is governments can't be trusted. Fiat currencies are not going to be a store of value. So you know, I want to comment first on the use of the word fiat and the notion that since convertibility of currencies into gold has been suspended, that there's nothing there. It's faith, it's what have you. And that's really not true. And obviously, you know, when one talks about Bitcoin, they talk about the absence of a centralized trusted authority because, you know, you can't trust the centralized authority. So when one holds dollars, when one deals in dollars, in fact, one doesn't get nothing. First, there are legal tender laws and your taxes will be paid in dollars. So even if you work in a Bitcoin economy, you perform services and people pay you Bitcoin, the government is going to translate that into dollars and require you to pay dollars in taxes. And more importantly, with that, one gets the government behind you in the enforcement of contracts. One gets access to the courts and then access to the executive branch in terms of the enforcement of contracts. You know, this isn't something I think people should make light of. You know, I think this is something really real. And in times and places where we've seen 
hyperinflation, you see both the quantity of money increasing, but you also, importantly, I think, always see the ability of the government to enforce the contracts declining. You know, independent of the supply of dollars, were an armed insurrection in the United States to be successful, which you know we could actually imagine, or it resulting in you know kind of chaos and a, a lack lack of rule one would expect the value of the dollar to decline precipitously, independent of how much is printed. So central to the Bitcoin case is, in fact, an absence of trust in the government. And I I think one of the corollaries, in point of fact, one cannot eliminate trust in the world and have wealth. You know, without trust, there cannot be wealth. One can imagine if your contracts in Bitcoin are not going to be enforced, by the government, you're not going to make them other than with people that you have a great deal of personal trust. The decentralized network is not going to be a substitute. As we turn to the second point, I do think the rise of cryptos and that cryptos are the only sort of asset that has appreciated when divided by central bank balance sheets does indicate that there is a flight from traditional currencies. I think, and I believe Pal would agree, that this is a, in large measure, one cannot separate this phenomenon from ultra-low and negative real interest rates throughout most of the traditional currency markets. So it's clear that, you know, right now, traditional currencies are going to degrade at some rate for some time. I think, as I mentioned in a previous podcast, the Fed is putting a great deal of weight on there being well-anchored inflationary expectations. I think the charts that PAL gives, and generically the performance of cryptocurrencies, is a strong contra indicator that this is the case. And I think the movement into crypto, money creation, money debasement, showing up in the prices of inflation hedges is materially different than what we've seen previously. So the early rounds of excess money creation or editorializing excess money creation, but it's very fundamentally different when printed money goes to fund fracking or goes to fund keeping moribund businesses alive. The things you know, such as fracking inherently, to the extent that money goes into the investment of business enterprises, that is inherently increasing the supply of goods, in, inherently has a deflationary counter effect to the inflationary effect of the money creation. That the current round of balance sheet expansion is showing up in crypto, in fact, this will in no way lead to the further creation production of goods, you know, and in fact is a diversion and waste of resources. Certainly the amount of electricity and the chips employed in mining crypto is not insignificant and it's fundamentally different than where money creation has gone earlier in the cycle. 
I think one does have to always be cognizant of the fact that true investing or, you know, what should be called investing is about value creation, is about adding capacity to produce things that humans want. Collecting is sort of the opposite. And one can see in the crypto phenomenon, manufactured scarcity and the idea of collecting to hold. One of the, I would say, the principal function of a financial system, what we want is for people to uh, put their savings, store their savings, or employ their savings, intermediated by a financial system, into productive assets. Uh, Long term, there cannot be wealth if savings are all, you know, essentially uh, put under the mattress or buried in a vault. And to the extent that savings are not redeployed into uh, productive enterprises, that's going to, over time, reduce the supply of goods. And that is inflationary. So money into fracking, deflationary. Money into crypto, inflationary. And I think that's a very significant change. Paul states that the current state of affairs, uh, money debasement, very low real interest rates, is not going to produce consumer price inflation and will be maintained indefinitely into the future. Now, I agree that low governments will attempt to maintain very low interest rates or that real interest rates may well be negative for a considerable period of time. But I think the appearance of consumer price inflation is going to force central bank hands and we'll have a return to normalcy. My scenario is, in fact, dependent on both consumer price inflation appearing and central banks responding. You know, I think if central banks don't respond, savings go into inflation hedges and not into productive enterprises, the cycle gets worse, and you end up with a paucity of goods and real declines in standard of living. I think central banks do believe that at a certain point, they would, in fact, have to counter inflation, that that inflation actually cannot be allowed to become ingrained in the system. One last comment and a point that I'd like to emphasize, a society in a world in which savings are in fact hoarded and not reemployed in productive enterprises is one in which standards of living are going to decline and with the accompanied kind of uh, social instability. So sort of like all assets promoted and sold by the promotion of a lack of confidence in uh, existing institutions, all kind of require the world to be bad, but not too bad. Because, you know, in the most extreme case where there is no functioning economy, there is no wealth, the only assets that matter are, you know, kind of canned food, ammunition, and a, uh, you know, sort of safe place to sleep. You know, being wealthy in that environment is an oxymoron. Pal actually makes the point, and uh, it's a good one and a serious one, in countering, you know, my argument, Powell would say, look at Japan, the serious money creation, ultra-low 
interest rates for decades. You know, why is Japan not the model? And for all of Japan's deficits and for all of Japan's central bank expansion, no consumer price inflation in Japan. In fact, modest consumer price deflation over a very extended period of time. And what I would throw out as the answer to that is uh, Japan had the fortune or misfortune of being located in the shadow of China. And that, again, in kind of the fracking analogy, at the end of the day, yen creation went into China building capacity in all sorts of basic industries. And that happening throughout the world. Now, you know, the throughout the world isn't there. If you don't see a capital spending boom anywhere, and I don't think Paul does, that is a different world than we've lived in over the last 20 years. So, you know, my conclusions are inflation expectations are that this will force central bank hands sooner rather than later. And I continue, my sort of expression of that belief is one should not be net bullish on bonds, but that the belly of the curve, which kind of seven to 20 years, is less unattractive than the long end and the shorter end. So one should be short the long end and five years and and long kind of in the belly. Till next time, thank you. Thank you for listening to Ask Andy. If you would like to submit a question, please email askandypodcast at gmail.com. Ask Andy is sponsored by Park State Bank. Visit www.parkstatebank.com for all your banking needs.